Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I am John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who also doesn't work at that restaurant. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass. <laughs> uh, I'm beginning to think no one works <laughs> yeah, at that the restaurant. One, well, the one lady does at the very end of the movie, and she might be the only one. Yeah. Well, she spends most of her time in front of that restaurant singing to the camera. Though. Yeah, singing through the entire credits. Well, it's actually not the yeah. entire credits, which I found very disappointing. I was really like, at some point I was like, okay, maybe they're going to commit and this will be the entire credits. And then they stopped yeah. and I was like, come on, guys, do we, can, we can do better than this. Um, David Byrne wrote that song, by the okay. way. Obviously a play on Wild right. Thing, but... Uh, I'm not going to lie, uh, I zoned fact. out. The song is long enough that I, I started just more acknowledging <laughs> yeah. that the song was still happening rather than like truly listening to the lyrics because... So, well, this is very long. I think it was David Burton. I could be confused. It might have been someone else involved with uh, Talking Heads. Anyway, uh, but Dem Deme had just done. Um, yeah, the the Talking Heads. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, but yeah. Uh, also, I do know this for certain, though. Uh, the two old women in the uh, oh, uh, in the in the recycle shop or <laughs> the, the what are these yeah, called? No, the, uh, <laughs> It's called recycle shop, shop in Japan. Um, um, or yeah, shop. Yeah, um, but the secondhand shop or whatnot. Uh, those are Jonathan Demme's mom and David Byrne's mom. Oh, nice. They're good actors. Yeah, they did a good yeah. job. They're great. <coughs> You've heard of Nepo babies. What about Nepo? But have you moms? talked about Nepo moms? Nepo moms sounds dangerously so close to something somebody <laughs> would search for on Pornhub. Okay, we just need to be really careful. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But now, now that we've put it into the world, Nepo Moms, trademark. Yeah, tr- we, we own whatever perversion this actually is. <laughs> yes. You have to pay us one cent ours. every time you are perverted and say Nepo Mom. <laughs> that's how that works, right? If you, you could, you could, somebody, somebody out there owns a <laughs> yeah, milk and, and has to get, it gets paid one cent every time somebody uses it, right? That's how that works. Um, I think it's the guy from yeah. uh, from uh, American Pie. He probably gets a gets some sort of milf residual. Before we get started this week, I do want to talk about our Patreon. Real quick. I mean, I'm 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 easy. Whatever you want to do. Yeah, let's do it. Patreon.com/slash Lost in Criterion. Over there for a dollar a month, you can help keep us going. You get access to bonus content. Whoa, are you kidding? I am not kidding. Every <laughs> month over there, we <laughs> do a bonus episode. It's a non-Criterion film. Uh, our supporters get to vote on what we're going to watch from a list usually that I put together, but sometimes the supporters themselves put together. Sometimes it's um, handed down by watched. Muse in his sleep. Yeah, sometimes sometimes the clouds roll back and the heavens open and uh, <gasps> directly from God into my brain is... <laughs> it helps that you're the emperor you, of Rome and you uh, can really enact a lot of it policies is true. based on that. It is true. I'm, uh, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, so that leaves us with a with a pretty good mix of movies over there. Uh, everything from Critters 2 to 
Critters uh, three. <laughs> we haven't watched. Critters no, I'm just 3 trying yet. to think of like um, what what you could possibly say that would would actually work, and it, nothing. Well, everything from Critters two to Star Wars five. That um, that works, though. Calling it Star Wars five somehow like does. Yeah, no one actually calls it Star Wars five. We did sure. watch Empire though. Yeah, uh, it's weird. It's a weird thing. Uh, but yeah, we have a lot of fun, and we're very grateful to our $1 supporters. A uh, bit above that for folks who can help us keep going a little bit more. Uh, make that little extra give to us. We'd like to thank them on air. So thank you to our $5 supporters. Yes. Andrew Jarrett, Eric Coronado, Stephen Goldmeyer, and Chris Otto. Thank you, all of you. A bit above that, we do something pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized thank you note, and mail that off once a month. We also like to thank those $10 and above supporters on air. So thank you so much to Nina Bajnak, Adam Speakerman, Tracy McGrath, Patrick Yako, and Jason Westaver, our current $10 and above supporters. Yes, thank you, all of you. If you want to check out those postcards without committing to that $10 mark or bypass postcards, head over to redbubble.com. Search for Lost in Criterion there. You can see the postcards. You can buy them as postcards, as greeting cards if you need a little more room or uh, want to put them into an envelope so that the post office doesn't put a put a yeah. stamp over top Maybe of the image. Maybe you want to use them as a wedding invitation, uh, funeral invitation, yeah. birthday party yeah. invitation. <laughs> there are plenty of good cards for inviting people to your funeral. Yeah, there really are. Uh, um, maybe my really my forte if you think about it. Yeah. Some of your art might even get someone killed. So yeah. it's useful that way. Um, they also exist as stickers, most of them, uh, and a couple of buttons uh, when the art works out. I really, I try to try to make it so that anything it works for you, you put it in, and then they haven't. Re- as far as we reasonable. know, there is no there is no throw rug or shower curtain one yet. But uh, we're working no, no, on no, 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 not that I've, unless I've accidentally not unticked a button. Uh, as I scroll down, um, there's one shirt. I do have fat thumbs, so if I'm on my phone doing this, there could be anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, anything's uh, possible. Buy yeah. it while supplies last. Yes, uh, it's print on demand. Supplies are infinite. It's great. I mean, that's what they like uh, to tell you. But I like to imagine like an, to that print on demand is a lie, and that there's an enormous warehouse of our of our crap just burning a hole. It's just like God, really yes. ruining their their but, finances. Burning a hole in the ozone. Uh, Probably, actually, yeah. at some point, uh, like a half million of like our that 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 because uh, was it Good Night? Was the name of that movie? Long Kiss Good Night. <laughs> I don't know what you. Oh yeah, shirts yeah. will be shipped off to some landfill in some other country, and oh, definitely. Because yeah. they was like, well, somebody bought one of them. We should print a cool ten thousand of them just in case. Oh, definitely, definitely. That's how that works. Um, just printing money, uh, printing negative money. Yeah, yeah, the, anyway. the opposite of printing money, really. Yeah, thank you so much to everybody who has purchased anything off that Red Bull. Thank you to everyone who supported us on Patreon, and thank you for listening, Pat. What this week we are talking about our a movie I second. watched with my dad. <laughs> I'm sure your dad liked it. It was. It was. He was. He was like, "Well, that was pretty good." At the end, I was like, "Yeah, it was yeah. pretty good." It was. 
a weirder one and and not quite what I was expecting when I got when I sat down. Uh, yeah. But uh, this is our second Jonathan Demi mo- movie or Demi. I don't actually know how to space it. It's not Demi. Demi. I learned that this way. It, I think it might be Demi. Um, That's probably just anyway. listening to some some one of the podcasts I used to listen to. One of the guys was a big Talking Heads head. Ah, oh, there you go. Yeah, and said you know, you'll, I feel you'll, like you'll Demi, that. but I'm not sure. Yeah, this is our second Jonathan Demme film. Uh, first one, so, so long ago. What was it? Uh, oh, you know what it was. Silence of the Lambs. Oh, I suddenly have less respect for yeah. this person than I did it's five Spine ago. number 13, that's how long Why Silence of the Lambs Why couldn't Silence of the Lambs be more like this movie? Yeah, I would have loved it more. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but yeah, I... Uh, Science of the Lambs, 1991, he did have some work between then and Something Wild. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, but Science of the Lambs obviously put him on the map in a way that a lot of his other work did not. Right. Um, well, I mean, this did I get nominated for some Golden would, Globes. I would, hope, I would have hoped that this would like put you on the map. I mean, it's like, it's a it's an odd one, but it's, it's the kind of movie that some block of critics I, I assume would watch and be like well that was really an, an yeah. interesting film you know what I mean like that was a unexpected turn although I guess it's probably a little in like late 80s early 90s this is maybe a little bit more in the norm in terms of like films because that was still well, the heyday well that what the reason I say that is this that was still the heyday of like I mean I say the heyday the heyday was pretty long of films that are like not we don't get movies like this very often anymore, right? Like we don't yeah. get kind of funny, kind of suspense dramas that like are one off with one, you know, they're only going to have one movie. You yeah. know what I mean? Like we don't get this kind of adult like kind of d- drama dramedy that much anymore. So, so yeah, I think that I think that might be fair. Um, but there's aspects of this that make it very abnormal for its time. Okay. Yeah, I believe um, that. That that I I get that. That does make yeah. sense. It is very aligned with the yuppie have a bad day uh genre of, right, of yeah. mid 80s films. Well, it's, it um, is, but it's it is an interesting take on it because in many ways it is the yuppie have a bad day but also the uh the flip of like he's also not telling the truth. Either. You know what I mean? He's right, also right, sort right. of yeah. playing part of the, that it, it's interesting right. that way. Which is which is where this doesn't come. This doesn't become a manic pixie dream girl movie. Which is what it felt uh, like because, it was where it was headed yeah. for quite a while. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that really set this apart for its time is it is 1986, and this uh, that sort of tonal shift of comedy into very bloody violence doesn't really exist until Tarantino, uh, five five or six years later. Yeah, I can see so, that. Yeah, it does. It does have a bit of a like a you know a Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fictiony kind of feel to it, yeah. right? Not as intense as Tarantino's version of that, because he does everything. There's there is no number other than eleven on his dials. So <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah. So so there is that aspect too, um, and if I recall correctly, uh, while Ray Liotta. Uh, Melanie Griffith and Jeff Daniels all got Golden Globe nominations for this. Uh, I'm pretty sure it did not. It did not do too, too hot. 
uh, on a budget of seven million, it had a box office of eight point four. All right. Well, I mean, it wasn't. Uh, uh, so it, it did make a, some money. Abject flop. <laughs> yeah, but it's not great yeah. either. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. I can see like. Especially if you haven't quite, if, if you're just a slightly ahead of the curve, right? You've not quite yeah. hit. Because the thing that makes it, it makes it sort of Tarantino-esque in that way is that, is that, is that, it's not just the comedy, but like it feels very goofy. In the, in the moments where it's not violent, it is very goofy, right? Like it's not just comedy turns violence. It's that very sort of specific brand where you're like, where the comedy, the violence to a certain extent sort of, the menace sort of comes out of nowhere, right? Um, and if it, if the if the viewing public is not actually ready for that shift, that kind of shift yet, yeah, I could see like this people sort of telling their friends, "I hey, don't don't go see that. That's not um, you're not gonna like it," kind of thing, right? Um, yeah, this is a really interesting discrepancy. It's got a ninety one percent on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, but a uh, seventy three on Metacritic, which is a big window i don't know i don't i don't usually compare those two websites so i don't know if that's normal or not but right. but that seems that seems like a big a big jump yeah um, i don't usually go to metacritic for film and, mov- and yeah, movies right. but um i don't know it, it i i guess it just sort of depends on the uh the audience right like who's using the yeah. website well metacritic right well they both just use um reviewers though for their for right, the primary right. score i don't know that's weird. it does look like rotten tomatoes is drawing from 45 reviews and metacritic only from 14 so okay well that, that, would, that makes might a little more it, sense right? yeah uh, ebert did really like this movie i could see that um, ebert's ebert's a bit of a weirdo right like was a bit of a weirdo yeah. he's he's ebert's always no this this movie uh definitely owes to corman uh and ebert loves corman right, <laughs> so, right yeah yeah no that, yeah yeah that it, it, that tracks it, it's that's the thing right it's yeah. like you know I, I don't know like not to not to like go completely off the rails with this podcast, but um hey well it's what we do best. Um yeah. that was always sort of the thing about like remember you you remember Gamergate, right? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. And and there sort of was this sort of like weird thing and, and I every so often some of the podcasts I listen to talk about the idea that like for some reason uh video game audiences never quite understood that like critics have a voice and like critics will like things or not like things based partially on their own personal opinions and like things right, that they right, like and right, don't right. like. And then it's normal for there to be discrepancies in reviews because some critics will be like, this sucks. And some critics will be like, I really enjoyed enough accent right. aspects of this to make me happy. And like with movies, like everybody's sort of already, that's sort of built in. Everybody's sort of like, yeah, you go to Roger Ebert, you know what, you kind of know what you're getting, right? Like you're like, right. ah, I know what this weirdo likes. <laughs> like, yeah. But also Roger Ebert is very straightforward that he he rates a movie based on uh how good it achieves yeah, yeah 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 which is which is a technique right like but that's also part of his you you know that you right. know a what this weirdo likes and and, B, and also if the he, way he does things if he doesn't like that movie's purported goals he doesn't like the movie like right yes yeah well Freddy exactly. Gottfinger achieved its goals uh, yes yes. <laughs> Yes, it did, and 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 that was a crime that he. Uh, yes. had but no, yeah. In all seriousness, I yeah. I, it, but that's what I mean, though. Is I think most people kind of fundamentally understood that reviewers' you know, films are not like providing some sort of subjective viewpoint on right. film, right? So sorry, it was a total derailment. I was just thinking about yeah. it the other day. Yeah, no, that's day, okay. The same the, that topic the other day. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, jumping off the Corman reference, okay. uh, yeah, that Ebert really loves, really loves a Corman. Jonathan Demay uh, got his start working for Corman. Oh, okay. Uh, he uh, <laughs> he directed for Corman Caged Heat, uh, the okay. quintessential uh, women <laughs> women prison movie. Uh, wow, really? So, like, how yeah. old is Robert Demay? Demay? Like, I that's or not Robert Demay. Uh, uh, Jonathan. Jonathan. I, I was thinking Corman. I, yeah. You know. um, yeah. That's okay. Um, he was born in 1944. Okay. Uh, he didn't, I, so, I, so he was me. actually 30 by the time he directed Caged Heat. Yeah, I didn't realize he was that old either. Um, but yeah, Caged Heat was 74, so he's he's 40 directing this, essentially 42. Um, but yeah, he did he did a couple uh, early uh, some a couple things in his early work for Corman. Corman. Um, also did a uh, Cloris Leachman comedy called Crazy Mama uh, in 75. Um, <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah. And most of you know, most of what he does in the 70s is probably stuff we don't really need to worry about. Uh, <laughs> and then um, Stop Making Sense really established him as documentarian. Uh, right. And, and he, has, he has that going parallel forward from this um i'm not familiar with his work prior to this uh i've heard good things about melvin and howard from 1980 uh swing shift looks like it could be interesting from 1984 um but uh but this is something wild it's definitely the earliest uh right right yeah just like kind of, i mean he did, i guess yeah i mean like kind of looking it, it seems like he there's a sort of shift into the into the sort of mainstream to a certain extent, right? And that like, yeah, it seems like this would be sort of the, this would be kind of the, uh, sort of the linchpin of that, right? Like, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to like, well, stop, I mean, I say stop making sense is not like a stop making sense is sort of still a sort of counterculture thing, right? And this is too, but like, you know, what I mean, you can sort of see that like. From a caged heat to this, there's a clear shift, like to yeah, more well, obviously things that somebody would yes. actually see in a movie theater. Well, that's what I mean, I right? Think, like I'm trying to look at his whole uh, his thing, yeah. and I'm trying to like kind of identify, okay, like where does he get enough sort of juice to like stop making caged heat? Essentially, you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, the majority of that juice is Silence of the Lambs. Period. Right. Um, no, I understand that, but that but and, this, and this he only gets the Silence of the Lambs. Because of this, that is right. true, because this is his first his first movie with Orion, uh, and Orion is who puts out Silence of the Lambs. Uh, right, and, and Orion must is his last this movie with Orion. Money, yeah, it must. Have Silence of the Lambs money. won Oscars. So, That's what I mean. It's like, uh, but this must yeah. have, but like, but you don't make you by and large you don't make your Oscar film. As you, I mean, it does happen, but you don't make it your first right. film, right? Like it, it's like right. he's been making movies, and at some point. There's a time where he gets to the point where he can get out of your caged teats and into your movies that people will, <laughs> will actually watch in a theater. That Wait, a, a theater that they can walk through the front door and not be embarrassed. Yeah. One thing I didn't realize about Demay, and we wouldn't have thought about it in these terms anyway. When we talked about Silence of the Lambs, it was so long ago, the podcast was a completely different thing anyway, right? Yeah. Um. Uh, we had different goals back then, not good ones. 
Um, no, <laughs> I don't not. know what I don't. We just didn't know have to find goals. I don't think we had to find goals back. Yeah, then. I don't think we did either. Um, you know, even even less so than we have to find goals now. But uh, now my the, my primary goal is to not talk about the movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just kidding. An interest, uh, but anyway, an interesting thing that happens with his prestige that he earns doing Silence of the Lambs uh, is that he uh, his next two projects are. Um, Social pictures, I think. <laughs> um, so he takes he takes his Silence of the Lambs money and makes Philadelphia, right? Uh, which you know is is about AIDS, right? And right. in '93, um, but I mean, but but it has big big like hitters in it, right? Like it's right. not like you yeah. know he's he's using that. It's not just the money; it's the clout, right? He has the clout to get yeah. like really powerful names. Yeah. I mean, Philadelphia's got Tom Tom Hanks stars in Denzel Washington. And, that's and, what I mean. That's, know, that's, are, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's right. a crazy yeah. cast. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I've not seen this. I forgot that it existed, actually. Uh, he did a 1998 adaptation of Toni Morrison's Beloved uh, with Oprah Winfrey in it uh, that I just vaguely remember. Now that I'm reading about it, I can think, maybe I have heard of this. But, um, but yeah, so... I think uh I think Philadelphia was much better uh much better accepted than uh than Beloved was. Beloved it looking at it, Beloved really bombed. Um, right. Disney gave him eighty million dollars to make Beloved for under Buena Vista and uh and it made twenty two. Um so that well, is you know. that is a that's a big drop. Um Oprah didn't need that money anyway, uh, right? Yeah, that that's the primary definer for 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 this yeah. for this podcast. Who did they need the money? Right, Oprah did it. Disney didn't. Danny Glover out, maybe. Yeah, uh, maybe. Oh, uh, but yeah. So, uh, other thing about this movie before we dive into it, uh, there is an unrelated movie called Something Wild from 1961, directed yes, there by is. I uh, was Jack concerned when this one showed up that like I had the wrong one. Yeah, this is the right one. However, Jack Garfield's 1961 Something Wild is spy number 850. We oh, will watch boy, it. So we can't even use it in the weirdest list that you like to do. <laughs> I love that list. I, I love, do too. I love, like, I love shared admit, titles lists. Yeah, it's a weird list it that I also love. We can't use this one. Yeah. That's that's actually kind of sad. Yeah, my favorite bonus thing to do. It really is. So yeah, we already talked a little bit about how this movie really changes gears in the middle. Yeah, it does. Uh, so yeah, just watching it, it's it starts out like a manic pixie dream girl uh, rom com. Uh, I mean, kind down of a to road like movie, the chucking the, ba- the pager out the phone. Like it's got the whole. Oh, yeah. it's, it's got everything. every trope. Yeah, and it's and it's uh it's rejecting those tropes before they were even really were like defined tropes. Yeah. <laughs> like like you know, uh this is the infancy of of Manic Pixie Dream Girl as a genre, right? right. <laughs> and already he's uh, like, Oh, this this genre's gonna suck. We better take it to task. Well it's the thing, right, is that like he know you know, the writer I find it fascinating because the writer, I only watched a little bit of the 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 um, special, uh, what did you call it? The um, bonus yeah, feature. Yeah, the bonus feature with the with the writer, and like he's like talking about the the 
the um, sort of like inspiration for this. And I find it very funny because it's like, oh, he got the like the original, you know, it, it, he didn't just like decide because like there's a million Manic Pixie Dream Girl movies to write it. He wrote it because he like saw like the sort of quintessential version of that happening at like a, a cafe or something in town, right? Which is, I, I think, very funny because he has this sort of like built in notion, right? That like, oh, well, it's weird that this like kind of punk rock girl or whatever is hanging out with this guy in a suit. And I'm like, yeah, but I bet it's not really. You know what I mean? On, at the same <laughs> right, time, you know right, what I mean? Like, right. yeah. Yeah, uh, this is um, this is his first screenplay. Um, e Fry or E Max Fry is, is his name, uh, and yeah, he he talks about seeing that couple in the East Village, and it's such a such an East Village pretension thing to even think that this is noteworthy. I really yeah, right. Like, yeah, it's like. like he he imagines he's writing about something unusual, but in many ways he's the unusual one for thinking this is weird, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know. It's like, yeah, of course, like, I don't know. It's just very funny, but, like, at the same time, it's like, oh, you didn't even, like, get this notion from watching other movies like this. You just got this idea because you decided this couple was weird. Right. I, yeah. I don't know. I just... Yeah, I don't, I just thought that somehow that really struck me as funny. It's like I don't think he didn't invent the Manic Pixie Dream Girl, but he certainly no. he certainly was it like uh, what what's the term they use for like inventions that happen multiple places at the same time? Like <laughs> freaking uh, uh, yeah, freaking calculus um, or whatever. Yeah, well, considering that the uh, 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 bringing up baby is often the the first cited example of the the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope and that's 1936 i don't know yeah, if that know, exactly holds true but i know i know yeah. i i mean the weird this the is a weird um the weird couple like is right. is is an yeah. old old i mean it's, it it's is, in writing too i mean like we, right. there are novels with that yeah. as a premise but clearly at some point in the nine in the like early 2000s it became an industry in of itself rather than a uh a lot of people were right. like simultaneously yeah. coming up with their own versions of it that are kind of like based on like again weirdos they saw at the, the at the coffee shop right and at some point somebody was like you know what we need to like industrialize this yeah because there was yeah. about and nine million know, of them in the early 2000s whenever we talk about manic pixie dream girl we do have to point out that no one really talked about this character as a stock character until nathan rabin coined the phrase in 2007 so right, like right. it's not yeah uh, what, what, what we can call it and how we even define it is constantly in flux depending on who's talking and when. Right. right. So, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Melly Griffith's character in this is wonderful. Um, she. Do you remember when we watched Pandora's Box? Not really. The silent um, film. No. If you give me some points of reference, maybe. So it's from 1922. It's a GW Past film. Um, and the major point of reference that I would have to give you is that the main character's hair uh, is this same black bob that Melanie Griffith is wearing. And the main character is named Lulu. Uh, okay. So it's a pretty overt. Like, it's a pretty overt reference, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I was gonna say like there is definitely a flapper element. I like, guess even the cover yeah. image 
that's what oh, kind of yeah, threw yeah, yeah. me is that like when you look at the cover image of the movie, you're like, oh, am I gonna watch a nineteen sixty? Because it's also got like I, I'd have to like zoom in because I never get a good look at the cover uh, this time. Yeah. But like the way it's laid out, it feels like a nineteen fifties, you know, like rom com kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, well, like just like the coloration, and then you combine that with her hair. I was like, oh, this is a night. I was expecting when I went in. Like, oh, this is a 1960s film about the 1920s. Yeah. Like, that's how I processed it, like, the visual in my head, just, like, sort of at a glance. Because you've got... Yeah. It's actually more of an... It, when you zoom in, it's more of an 80s style in, like, the lettering and the coloration on the outside. Right, right, but, right, right. But the pose feels very... I, I'm looking at the one that's, like, yellow on pink. The, the pose yeah. feels very 1960s... I think that's fair. Like, romantic yeah. comedy poster style. Her... Uh, the only thing that sort of modifies that maybe is um, the use of her sort of African jewelry. Uh, yeah, but, but like uh, I, I, but even I, that I put is a smaller on Hollywood right. in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, we'll put any old fucking thing on anybody. Yeah, that's fair. Um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, their interaction. <laughs> I do love, I do love her character introduction. Where she's just another customer who sees his con and <laughs> decides to call him out on it. He's uh <laughs> Demay lets us lets us in that he's not on the level early enough, I like. Um because uh it's it's post the first sex scene. But she makes him call work and he's kind of freaking out about calling work. Um, but then the next morning, or, or later that afternoon, depending on how much time has actually passed, because uh, it is like three o'clock when they get to the <laughs> get to the right. hotel. So I guess it's probably that evening. Um, after he gets out of the shower, uh, he's on the phone, seemingly talking to his wife, uh, and uh, it's low in the mix because it would be low, and no one calls attention to it because Audrey Lulu doesn't notice uh but the operator is saying please hang up and try again while he's on the phone to his wife in that scene right and it ends it ends with very audibly ends with the the phone's been off the hook too long beeping noise um so you know that's that's still like a half hour in but it's it's early enough that we know we we're planting the seeds that Something he's not weird. on the level. Something's well, something's going on with his relationship with his family. Right. And then, it's, it's, but it's not like it's not that. I mean, like I kind of missed that scene. Like I didn't miss it, yeah. but like I didn't pick up on it. And so you like they kind of put you in a situation where like each. I I I like it when when movies generally I like it when movies do this. It, it puts you in a situation where you as the audience are kind of in a very gray area where you don't really fully. Right. You're like well. You get you get an inclination that something's wrong from a couple things, right? Like it's not just that. Like you get the idea, like oh, he's because his, his just behavior is weird, right? His willingness yeah. to just like you as an audience member read it as strange that he is just like, yeah, sure, fuck it, whatever, right? Like you know what I mean? Like that's not a normal. Like you get maybe that that's like oh, he's running away from his family, but then like you also kind of I don't know. I, I think it's very well acted is probably part of it that you get. Yeah, even without that, because I I did miss that scene. I didn't I didn't catch that. Yeah, um, 
you still get the idea that like there's something weird. Like you know what I mean? Like this doesn't feel the same as like if it were just a like husband running away from his family. There's something weirder going on here, right? Even yeah, just just for, I, I think, think just from the way that Jeff Bridges' character is acting, right? Like, and it just doesn't Jeff Daniels, feel, not Jeff Bridges, or, but yes. Why did I keep, I kept saying Jeff Bridges like all day yesterday too? Like I can't, yeah. I can't. Something I wrong with a, me, Adam. It's I'm a saying. it's a common enough mistake. I'm not going to hold you against hold it against you. Actually, I realize on that on that note, in an own omission, I realized uh, this week that uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, uh, maybe even longer. Uh, Barbarella came up, and I described it as being directed by Jonathan Corman when it's directed by uh, or <laughs> directed by Roger Corman uh, when it's directed by Roger Vadim. I don't know why I why I conflated those two, but anyway, everybody makes mistakes. That's all I'm saying. I know we got to have grace. I have with to each go other, back. Pat. We got to edit the whole podcast. <laughs> all right. Um, I'll keep an ear out for how many times you say bridges like, before I like, correct Jeff you. Bridges and Jeff uh, Daniels don't even look alike. No, they don't really. That's fair. But I did that. All they did day become yesterday. famous around the same time. So I guess that works. I mean, I guess they are both men with faces, which is all yeah. about all it takes for me. Uh, I just promise you that you are not the only person who makes who, who confuses those two on a regular basis. Uh, even they though they are together absolutely and, not related to each other, and make, they don't have the make, same last name. Um, <laughs> make, make, make them the. Make, they should just like combine their talents and become one person, like uh, like in a <laughs> Dragon Ball Z. Yeah, they can just merge. Yeah, probably. <laughs> Definitely. It's um, a thing people can do, right? I think I've done that in the past. Merge, like, like watching a Jeff Bridges movie and thinking, I can't believe this guy was in Dumb and Dumber. Yeah, uh, right, right. That's, yes, I think true because like, he wasn't. I, think, yeah, I can't believe it because it didn't happen. Right? No, I. Yeah. There's too many actors. We should only have like five total. <laughs> that's really that is that's yes. that's the primary. If there's one argument of this entire podcast, it's by me at least. It's that there's too many yeah. actors. We should only have like five. Yeah, um, but anyway, uh, it does help with that character that Jeff Daniels is uh, very charismatic. Uh, right. He's hard to he's hard to dislike. Um. Even even as we think he's cheating on his wife with with a random woman, uh, he found on the street, uh, who found him on the street, in fact, um, who essentially kidnaps him, and he's just well. Like, so that's that's okay, a funny sure, thing, right? Why is not? it like I was talking to my parents, right? Because I was watching it with my parents, and like I forget what exact point, but I was like, we were like, um, I forget, like we were only probably about, like, I guess it's probably when they get to the hotel, right? And like. Even really before they quite get to the hotel, right? There's it, there's a shift in his tone, right? Mm-hmm. Where I was like, oh, that's why I that's why in the description it's kidnap in air quotes, right? It's like right. very quickly you go from oh he's being kidnapped to he's not being kidnapped, right? Like you know he's 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 a very very willing participant, right? Um, and even kind of like the fluidity with which. And I, I don't think this is bad acting. I think this is actually, I think this is good acting. I think it's on purpose, right? Like, Jeff Daniels knows what the characters, you know, he knows the story of the character, and he's right. trying to, like, let his audience know through acting something that even Lulu doesn't know, right? Which is that, like, this is, this guy's not on the level. Because, like, the fluidity with which that character accepts really, like, 
it, it sort of violates the Manic Pixie Dream Girl trope. And so, you know, again, we, 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 that's a right. later term, but like in that he he doesn't resist the changes the way he should, right? Like the shifts in their relationship and the and the speed with which they happen are she's trying to shock him and he's handling it too well. She comments on that from time to time, but doesn't understand necessarily why that's happening, right? She's right. sort of noticing that, like, boy, he, you are, you know, she says, like, you're a good liar, but really what she's talking about is the fact that, like, he's handling this a little too well, right? Right. For for him to be, and so she's even yeah. sort of aware, I think, and we as the audience are, even if we, you know, miss scenes, are sort of aware that, like, oh, there's something, something fishy is going on here. Right. Yeah. Uh, and she is legitimately like. mad cool. at him, when she finds out later from Ray that he let her believe that he was happily married and she was, and he's been separated for over a year, right? Right. Uh, yeah. Um, it just makes for a very funny. It's a very, it's very good because it makes for a very interesting dynamic, right? Like, and right. and even Absolutely. though you know we talk about violating a trope that maybe doesn't doesn't exist, but like it's it makes the story way more interesting, right? Like yeah. when you watch it, you're like, oh, this is actually engaging because. They're doing Absolutely. a lot of things that aren't expected, as we as the audience are not expecting either. Yeah. I mean, the the Mad Pixie Dream Girl trope is that, you know, she's she basically, she only exists to make the on-weed middle-class guy's life right. more you interesting. You know, your, your uh, uh, what's the name? Gar- your garden states. Yeah, your garden states. Um, your Elizabeth Towns, which is what the movie, what the term was coined. I've about, was never Christian seen Elizabeth Town because Town. I refused to go see it when it came out. So um, you get Garden all State I remember about Elizabeth it. Town is it made me think about Garden State a lot. Right, um, so, right exactly. Um, right. Yeah, I I couldn't go see it because it became the it became what with it being shot very near where I was living at the time, it became yes. the the sort of movie du jour, and I just couldn't I couldn't handle. It. I was like, guys, I'm not going to go see this movie. Just because it was shot twenty miles away, <laughs> basically, I just can't handle yeah. it because, like, I, you know me, like, if too many people yeah. talk about anything, I'm like, well, I'll see it later. And that one just never happened. Like, usually, yeah. I will see it later, and then sometimes that never happens. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Anyway, um, is it good? One of the defining characteristics of of the archetype, though, is that she doesn't really have her own goals, right? right? Well, or uh, her goals are entirely centered yeah. on that male, right? Like, her goals right, are to right. like fix him or whatever. Right. Yeah, Audrey has her own goals, right? right. <laughs> and, uh, and and she and uh, she acts towards the, like very importantly, right. she acts in a in accordance with achieving her goals, right? Like you right. Know. And while while Charlie's goals uh, are, let's see how this plays out. <laughs> um, Charlie's goals are actually also for for at least a chunk of the film counter to what Audrey's goals are, right? You know, there is conflict there. Between, yeah, I mean the conflict is the more two. like well, it's, and that's kind of interesting though is that we we the conflict in many ways the conflict we are told is not the conflict that um, right actually exists right, um, and that 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 alone is very very interesting right like he's we think his goal is like well that's the thing is like I think he's the most sort of he's complicated in that sense because Andre's goals are actually a little bit easier once we know what they are they're a little bit easier to parse. Whereas mm-hmm. hers, we do find ourselves in a situation where, or, you know, hers are relatively easy to parse, but like his, we find ourselves like, okay, right. like what precisely his goals are, what he's trying to accomplish here. Like by the end, we kind of understand 
what yeah. you know because we he the goal the goal is essentially accomplished, um, but we don't really you know we his apparent goal keeps shifting on us right. I think by the time Ray shows up, we've got a pretty good feel of who Audrey is, and Ray does throw a throw a, a wrench in our understanding of Audrey by that point, right? Because he's right. not someone we've heard about. She's married to a to a very violent criminal. She's married. Right. Um, but we still got a pretty good feel of, of who she is, and Ray plushes that out. Whereas by the time Ray shows up, Charlie's still kind of mysterious. Well, we've, we've uh, lost his... You know, so his initial goal seems to be, you know, he's been kidnapped, right? So he's just trying to get home. Yeah. It's sort of... Seems a shift to take advantage of the situation that like there's this this woman who is interested in him and he can like cut loose right. And then we right. go, and then and then especially once we sort of find out so, like we haven't figured out because bearing in mind that when Ray shows up we don't know definitively like we find out through Ray's actions what Char Charlie's like actual yeah, like backstory is backstory right. is. Yeah. And then, and then, what what happens then is we essentially lose our footing, right? With him, we don't right. really know what's going, like what he's trying to accomplish anymore. Like, and then you know, we by the end of the film, we've we've sort of had it reestablished, right? We kind of um, we kind yeah. of get it back. Yeah, uh, right. Which and, I like. I think it's very interesting. And everybody because, arrives at a new place by the end of the film, too, right? And right. we and you know, we see essentially we we kind of get to see as an audience. Charles like sort of develop his like maybe that was to a certain extent his goal all along we don't know but we sort of watch it in development in the sense that like we, we he decides to start doing these things that seem counter counter like uh counter to his like sort of personality right right yeah <laughs> and yeah but the the one thing we absolutely know about Charlie even by then is that he is just a legitimately friendly person for some reason. Right, yes, like, yes, yeah. Like, his, his using people's names when they're on the name tags isn't isn't presented as him, like, manipulating things. Right. He's just even, trying even to be though kind. I, I, I had a hard time with it. Like, I, I yeah. it, it took a while for the movie, despite the movie telling us, like, the movie very much says, right. hey, this is a friendly dude who is just friendly. Yeah. He, the thing he with cares the about making other people happy, and the hitchhikers help a lot, because yeah. at first you're like, well, this is just because he's with Audrey, and then you sort of see like, oh no, he like legitimately had a good time hanging out with them the whole time. And right. You're kind of like, you sort of start developing a, you don't develop his goals necessarily, but you sort of develop a sort of view of his personality that's fairly robust in the sense yeah. that you're like, oh, this is a person who, to a certain extent, is hunting for friends, but. You know, not necessarily, but like, right. it's friendly, but like, needs more. Is kind of maybe adrift a bit. And needs relationships. Yeah. like he's, he's looking for grounding them of anything, them, right? Right. right. Um, and that's, his, I guess, that is his goal. But we don't. It's, it's not fleshed out towards towards the end of the mo- end of the movie, right? And and to the point where, like, especially when you see him once he's like, it. I find it fascinating how it's further fleshed out even after the movie sort of moves into a little bit more of a, a suspense, a little bit more thriller. It's not quite, but yeah, like when he's in there buying the stuff. At oh, the, the gas station store, scene it's is so funny, amazing, it's so awesome. You're like, oh man, this is like just a legitimately very friendly guy who yeah. is still like being like even when he's can't give it his full attention, is 
still like kind of forming relationships with like everybody he encounters. Uh, right. It's a really fascinating. It creates a very fascinating yeah. personality type because it's not. It's worth noting the same kind of ennui that we're used to in previously aforementioned trope, right? Where it's just like a washed right. out middle age, a middle aged guy who's like middle class who's like hunting for something different. He's different, right? Because like he's he's not de- necessarily detached himself from the world. Like the she's not bringing him back into the world in that way right that you see in those kind of movies a lot he's right he's actually very engaged with the people around him he just hasn't found people to make new relationships with they're lasting right he's not made long-term relationships he doesn't have those relationships at work he doesn't have those relationships in his home life anymore because his wife did leave him uh and he doesn't know how to actually make those relationships with the service industry people he's trying to have relationships with. Right, well because right. because they're they're yeah, he's he's running into the problem that he wants to. He's like he's reaching out right. and trying to attach like connect with anybody. But he's yeah. running into the constant problem of like, well, I'm only ever encountering these people on like a very, very limited basis, right? So I'm not really making long term relationships. Right. Um right. but like Whereas- and so Audrey acts as more of a conduit for him at least than like because he just starts she sort of represents a way for him to like form like because like he even makes a relationship at work through her right. right you know what I mean like it's 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 a fascinating right. sort of scenario right like she keeps presenting him with opportunities to actually have longer term connections to the people around him. with with anyone else yeah yeah and that that interaction with Nelson the gas station clerk is just so, I, t- I love so it it's like first I think off, my favorite scene in the whole movie yeah. honestly first off Nelson turns the name tag thing back on him because he's still wearing the yes, name yes. tag from which is very unexpected from, uh, from the high school reunion, uh, and then just just all of their interaction is just very, uh, very it's 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 a zaniness to it certainly, um, but uh, but when when Charlie when Charlie is so one track. You know about about getting this disguise so he can continue his his following of uh, of Ray and Audrey. Um, he starts changing in the line. I know, like, I love it. In it's the like store. The, uh, <laughs> I, I just I forget exactly what his name, what now, his response. I wrote it down. It's like, could you be cool or whatever? I forget what it's like. Charlie, attempt to be cool. Yes, yeah, that's what uh, it is. That is what yeah. it is. Yeah, I love Nelson's it. It's great. So funny. I, Absolutely. I, I, that alone, to a certain extent, like amped the movie up quite a bit for me because like there's a few of those kind of scenes where you're like oh this is like this movie is something special there's something special going on here and that's that's one of the things that uh uh deme in the in the um interview with him attributes to something he learned from corman is that uh all of these one scene characters need to be memorable for something right right uh and and in a lot a lot of that heavy lifting in this movie is done by having them be cameos. John Sales as the uh, motorcycle cop, John right. Waters as the used car salesman, um, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera. Well, and it's sort of the, uh, it, I think it, it, he does. Demi does an interesting thing here because he he seems to do that based on how long they're going to be on screen. Yeah. So the like more they're not going to be on screen, the more likely they are, I think, to be like. Like maybe I feel like to be like a cameo and then like if they're going to be on there longer 
maybe they, they sort of get more personality like traits, right? right? That you actually, because right. like the cop is on there for such a short time. That it's like, well, he doesn't really have a personality trait, right? It's right. a one, it's a one scene interaction. But then as we progress or as other things happen, like you, you, you have, you have your, you know, characters that they spend time talking to and then they all have to have sort of like quirks or sort of like personality right. uh, things. <laughs> Audrey's mom's harpsichord solo. I love the that harpsichord. She gets. I love so the, the scene with. What I love about Audrey's, I, I did love the Audrey's. The Audrey's mom scene is not as funny, but is really like very telling because you go through this entire thing like, oh, Audrey's mom is fully aware of how weird her daughter is, and like Absolutely. how yeah. and that like her daughter is straight up just lying to her. <laughs> like yes, right. I like I, I found that very, very and and then just like. It's an unexpected turn for a character that it seems like is going to be hyper religious, hyper uh, conservative, and yes. not like y- y- th- that. Wrench makes her very, very memorable, right? That that idea that like, oh, she is fully aware of who her daughter is, and and just sort of accepts her as she is, right? Is a, is an right. unexpected thing in a movie, in, in any uh, story, but especially in a movie, uh, like where you're kind of expecting, you know, where like she seems to be running away from something, but doesn't seem to also that doesn't seem to be the case, right? In many ways. Yeah. So, I don't yeah. know. It, I, I just found it. I, I found that I found that relationship, but it's less funny, but it is very memorable. Yeah. Um Nelson by the way is the uh uh is a percussionist in Stop Making Sense. Yeah, I um yeah, yeah. I, I, I he felt like somebody that like his face felt vaguely familiar, but not no. I was like, well, I yeah. it must. I'm probably just being like he's not talking heads. Normal drummer, right. but he is someone who who plays percussion in in the movie. Um, yeah, uh, I I don't know who played the liquor store clerk. I can't remember. Um, I do like uh, him as a, he is a he's also yeah. a funny. I like I like especially. I know there's just a lot of fun little things like we me we had a whole conversation in my house about his pipe because apparently <laughs> I knew my right. grandfather smoked a pipe but I'd never yeah. had never seen it and apparently he smoked a very very similar pipe which is um, it doesn't surprise me exciting to yeah. me to find out yeah. that he smoked just the goofiest pipe possible right his pipe is his memorable thing um, well and and his, and his his accent he has a very right very specific yes, he accent does. yeah uh. I found that, uh, given his pipe and his accent, uh, which give him a, a feeling of pretension about what he pride in what he does, at least, right? Yeah, I, I, I think um, it's, yeah, it's, I would call it. A pipe. I, yeah, um, I was uh, a little surprised that there was no pushback from him in the scene, where uh, or or <laughs> or anything else different, because uh, she walks in and says she wants scotch. Uh, and uh, what she has been drinking up to that point and what he gives her with no further questions is Seagram 7, which is American whiskey. Uh, it's it's very much not scotch. Now, she does ask about the Glenn Levitt on the, on the shelf behind him, which is scotch, and that's when he turns around to get that. She grabs the money and runs, right? Right. Uh, but, uh, but Seagram 7 is not scotch. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Might be yeah, I- sort of scotchy whiskey. But it is I, not. I I have to assume that it's just like oh we don't we don't care enough to like the, you know right it's not yeah you know or alternatively like yeah I, it's weird that he gave it to her it's less weird that she would just like want it yeah yeah 
yeah, or or her consider that scotch. Anyway, it was a it was something I put in my notes because I noticed it was weird. That is the gotcha. only the only thing it's in there for. Um, this is Ray Liotta's really first movie role. Okay. Uh, I don't know if the character was Ow. named Ray before Ray Liotta came on. Um, I do like to imagine a world where Ray Liotta is so dedicated to the method uh, Wait, that he, he only plays character who share his name. <laughs> he went uh, to the government and changed his name. Yes. Uh, I I I like I like him quite a bit in this. I I found him. I found he he. You know, it's not that Ray Liotta. It, it is not out of character for Ray Liotta as a as an actor, but he does it. He does he does it very well, right? Like he's very good right. at being this. He's very very good at being very uh, very scary when he wants to be, right? Um, yeah, and it's very good here. Yeah. And and like it's interesting to see everybody this young, right? And like oh wow, like um, Ray Liotta's always been <laughs> kind of terrifying. Yeah, yeah. Um, Leota got the job uh, from Melanie Griffith's uh, suggestion. Um, they had acting classes together. Melanie Griffith got the job because Max Ripe was picturing her as he was writing the role, and then apparently independently, uh, Jonathan Demay said, "Hey, why don't we uh, why don't we cast this Melanie Griffith girl?" And he's like, "Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> That's exactly um, what I was looking for." Yeah. Um Jeff Daniels was there's a little conflicting information because on the one hand uh Demi says that Orion was pretty hands off. They gave him the money and as long as he brought in the product they were happy. Okay. Uh, cuz they were they weren't, you know, he had been burned previously by uh by production companies that were too hands on. Uh, but he also then says that um, his original choice for Charlie was Kevin Klein. Okay. And he said to Orion, hey, why don't we have Kevin Klein for Charlie? And they said, okay, that could work. We were thinking maybe this guy Jeff Daniels, though, uh, who had already made a picture or two with Orion. So that's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that, yeah. That, I, mean, I guess it sort of. They just, were, I guess like it sort of comes down to how how they may understood the suggestion, right? Like it comes down to like, yeah. did he feel like they were telling what to do, or were they just making right. suggestions, right? And there's a lot of a very fine line there, right? Like if they're just like, hey, we had this idea, what do you think? And then it's like, oh yeah, actually that's really great, I like that. Versus like, uh, then they told me who to hire. Right, like you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they outright told him he had to use Jeff Daniels, but they were like, "We well, already have a relationship with this guy. Why don't you look at him?" Uh, and they decided to do it. Um, Ray was actually uh, Leota had already been rejected by the casting agency. Oh, funny! The casting directors uh, when Melanie Griffith suggested that her friend Ray Leota should be in this movie, <laughs> uh, and and. Uh, Demay says he went to his casting guys with with the name, and they said, "Oh yeah, we already put him on the no pile." It's like, well, oh. why don't we give him a chance? Uh, and brought him in, and they really loved him. Um, 
Demay's got an interesting style he describes for for how he shoots. He calls it re- rehearsing on film. Is what he refers to it as. Sounds uh, they don't. They yeah it does. <laughs> they, yeah, um, but not doing rehearsals. Maybe that's why Color Purple had such a high budget because uh, Oprah Oprah isn't an actress. So if right. they're doing rehearsing so doing on film, an awful lot of on on <laughs> yeah. film rehearsals, burning through a yeah. lot of film stuff. Maybe very maybe. quickly. Um, but yeah, so essentially craft craft the scene with the actors, but not not in a way where you're like running through. Just like let them have yeah, their yeah, ideas. I, I kind of get too. that. That makes sense. I can kind of. Yeah. I I kind of get the idea. Yeah. And then start running it with the camera and obviously in the crafting with the actors. Um, Tak Fujimoto, who is his uh, cinematographer, um, is involved with that and starts thinking about lighting. But then, you know, with each take, you change something. Keep sort of you, refining you it, yeah. Push back, you change the lighting, you change the camera angles, whatnot. You start refining it and eventually you have something that's perfect. But also... I agree. You've wasted a lot of film in getting to that point. So one, so one has to know. imagine that, like, for the many, like, uh, one has to imagine that the uh, the advent of digital film was like a godsend. Oh yeah, probably. Oh, finally. Oh yeah. He was really just waiting for it. He was he was a man waiting for the invention that was going to set him free, right? Because absolutely. Now, I, now I've burned all the film you want. You can we can all you're spending is is uh. I mean, you're still spending a lot of money to have everybody on set the whole time, but um, certainly less than than also paying for the film. But uh, that's interesting. You yeah. could, I, you, I, I can see that. Like that makes sense. It's it's a very sort of like organic way to like sort of let them all figure out where they want to be, how they want it to go, right? Yeah, um, yeah, but just very expensive. Um, another Corman uh, piece of advice that that left with Demay, um, which I'm sure. I'm sure Demay thinks he is doing in uh, Silence of the Lambs as well, <laughs> um, is uh, Corman's advice is essentially your hero is only as interesting as your villain is multidimensional. Um, and and boiling it down, your your villain has to believe that he's the good guy in his own story. Is right, rule which, there. which is a sort of a common yeah. sort of yeah. thing. You know, it's like that's a sort of common understanding of the way like right, right. villains are written. Yeah. Uh, but it is, I don't as common an understanding as it is. It is something that bad villains don't have. Right. Uh, I don't right. know that the, that Hannibal and Silence of the Lambs actually has that. But uh, right. yeah, sure. But Ray does. Ray does have that. Ray absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Ray, of course, has a one a one mind goal of keeping his wife. Right. But uh, yeah, and, and that's true. Ray, Ray is one dimensional in that aspect. But we we see Ray, and and, and he is a little one dimensional. But like. The ways at which sort of we we see him going about part of it is probably just because they give him independent screen time. Uh, yes, and we see the ways that Ray goes about it are. It's not like a stalker movie, right? You know what I mean? Like in right. the same way, like you don't there, you know they're being hunted, but it doesn't have the same feel, and so you kind of like come to see like, oh, Ray's pretty single-minded and obsessed, but he's not a single dimension you you can imagine a world where you can imagine him in scenarios where he's not doing this right right which i yeah. think is really what a lot of that com- for me at least comes down to is like can you imagine this person in a world where he's not doing the thing he's doing right now right 
where he has broader life. Um, and yeah, you can I, do that. I will. I will say that that if you if you extract him hunting down his wife and the robbery, it does get a little bit harder to imagine Ray as as a person. Right? He seems to have because like though the we understand that the reason he's doing the robbery is because of his desire to sort of get rid of Ray or get rid of Charles, Charles. But like you, he kind of seems to jump to sort of his, you know what I mean? Like he jumps to like his go-to pretty easily. And so we don't, but yeah. we do see him interacting with Charles in a way where you're like, Oh, well, if this person weren't a maniac, maybe he would actually probably be pretty interesting to, be around right so he's not he's not completely one-dimensional but I, I will say that it is unfortunate that they use yeah. robbery as a way to establish sort of the way he his his sort of yeah going, i'm making sense he's going against like he's trying to get rid of charles and he uses the thing that we already know about him instead of something else right and he and he jumps to that before he tries the more subtle stuff because because he thinks he has to extract Audrey from the situation before he can work the psychological angle. Right. But ultimately, he is, uh, you know, he's out of prison. Whatever their relationship might be like, and like he's there with another woman too, right? Uh, but uh, from Ray's point of view, his wife has fallen with in with a guy who is actively lying to her and he knows that he's actively lying to her right like ray has that detail uh and he tells her later but but he th- thinks for whatever reason that he can't he can't share that with her until he's sort of isolated her from the situation he's got to right, extract that's her that's true yeah yeah and it, i think it, that's it, pretty it's... common and i think that for 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 some Relationships based on lies, uh, be them romantic relationships or uh, cults, uh, extraction before you present why this is a bad thing that's been going, that, why you're the victim, uh, is is a legitimate method of doing things, right? Um, here, it right, is right. Uh, so, a so psychopathic some, violent man doing that, well, and it's not it, good. Right, but. but it's also sort of one of those things where like, his methods are fucked up. Yeah. And, and we were, we as an audience are kind of put in an interesting situation, right? Because initially we, we find out the, we essentially find out the information at the same time as Audrey does, like on a, sort of on a fundamental level, right? Or not exactly the same because we find out when Ray finds out, but um, right. you're not necessarily on Ray's side or anything like that, but you're not necessarily committed to the idea per se that like Ray is, Ray is taking obviously a, a, a not good approach to dealing with this, but like later on, we see him evolve. It evolve into a position where now Ray is just a crazy stalker, right? Like he goes right. from from a guy who who maybe is trying to like help somebody who's important to him to, albeit like an insane way, like a really nuts way to do it, but like still seemingly having that that motivation to. Oh, now it's just about getting like. Almost sort of a sense of ownership, right? Right. Which is in, it's sort of an interesting evolution to watch uh, for our character, right? And of course, of course, his his ultimate motivation was always that sense of ownership, right? Yeah, he he. Right. Yeah, we we, we come to understand that right. that was always the case, but we don't necessarily know that at the beginning. 
but yeah, Ray Ray is a great character. Um, interestingly enough, uh, both Ray Liotta and Jeff Daniels decided that they wanted to do the fight themselves. Okay. And while they had while they had stand-ins uh, ready to to be involved with it if need be, uh, that fight sequence is both of them doing the whole thing. Interesting. Uh, Demay did tell one story during during the knife bit uh, that uh, when the knife drops, uh, somebody on screen yelled, or somebody off screen yelled, and Demay was was irate that someone had ruined his take by making a noise, uh, and it was one of his camera operators had gotten cut by the blade when it oh, fell. Oh wow! <laughs> and he's like, "Oh, oops, sorry." <laughs> Uh, immediately apologized or whatever, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, um, the uh, the original ending, according to the interview with the screenwriter, um, was much more active. Okay. Um. Proactive. With the stabbing, in fact, um, not not an accidental stabbing. Uh, and here's another one where, you know, this is this is Fry talking, not not Demay. So Demay had established and said that uh, that uh, Orion was pretty hands off. Uh, Fry says that Orion pushed back on the ending. Well, so I wonder if that's just different stages of the process, right? It might have been. Fry is like the writer, so he's he has written it, and then he gets pushed back on like how it's going or whatever. Yeah, and he says, you know, he's not he's not necessarily talking about the whole experience chronologically, right? Um, but he had previously said that the only reason uh, uh, Demay had been involved was that Orion asked him who he wanted to direct this movie. And he said Scorsese or Demay. And Scorsese was making Night Shift. So right. they got Demay to do it. Um, but, yeah, he says he says Orion pushed back on the ending uh, involving killing it all. Um, and he wrote, rewrote it to to not involve uh, Ray dying or, or at least not involve Charlie killing Ray. Um, and nothing worked. And nothing worked, and nothing worked, and that what we see is ultimately that compromise, um, where Charlie still kills Ray, but it's Ray's blind rage that kills Ray, and it's right. just Charlie just holding the knife. Um, which like is it, yeah. it's interesting because if I were gonna go, you know, if I were gonna back, you know, Monday morning quarterback this whole thing. I almost think it might be more interesting to have it be what the the writer originally had it be, which yeah. is like a very like uh, not not as like a choice, but a um, you know like Charles's sort of like willingness to sort of like be friendly with everybody, sort of falling apart, and like no, I have to like get rid of this guy, like he's dangerous, I got to get rid of him, kind of thing, and making it much more violent could be kind of uh, would be an inter- it would be an interesting movie, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, right. So it's it's interesting. Like we we kind of the the compromise works 
fairly well, but like at the same time, I also kind of feel like the compromise is it does feel to me personally when watching does feel very compromise esque in the sense that like oh well I was assuming it's because they couldn't act the fight scene very well and so it's like well shit like I don't know we'll just have a it sort of be that that sort of that trope of like oh he basically ran into the blade right 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 um, and just you know and fine but, you know they even oversell that. Because not only does he stand up holding the knife weirdly and Ray turns around and runs into it, but we get that voiceover of, uh, oh, no, Ray, or, or whatever he actually says. Right. That, that really, sell, really sells that this is, a, uh, this is an accident. Um, right, yeah, yeah. And I, and I don't know how I feel about that part. I don't know how I feel yeah. like it, there's almost like, I don't know how to describe it. There's almost a sort of cartoony element to him sort of stumbling away, like bleeding. Yes. It's like, I, you know, come on. I, I, it is not. It is not the best ending this movie could have. Is what I'm saying, right? Like it works, but it does feel like man. Like I, I would have liked something else, and I felt that and when of I course, was watching. Without yeah. any of the other knowledge, I, I felt that when I was watching. I was like, well, that was a little bit. That ending's a little mediocre. Right, right, right. And of course, it is just the climax. We still still have like ten minutes of movie yes, after I know, that, right, right, but yeah. where, uh, where the you know. Uh, Charlie has arrived at not being able to go back to his job uh, just because he knows too much about the world now, I guess. Um, you know. Uh, and instead spending all of his time trying to find Audrey again uh, and that not working out for a few months. Uh, the scene where he goes to his uh, to her old apartment also, yeah. also you know, another uh, right back around to that even even bit characters need to be memorable uh but the lady who lives in her apartment now uh asking if she knows how much audrey's rent yeah, if he knows how much audrey's that rent was an interesting scene though know, because it. i was kind of, i loved it but i was also honestly kind of expecting it. it it kind of presents you with like a sort of false reality where it's like is something like is this movie's going to continue to get stranger now like you know what i mean yeah like, are we are, is something going to happen now that we're I'm not is there is there a, a final curveball in this movie you know what I mean it was kind of the way I because yeah. like the way he starts talking to her it's like she's not you you know and it just comes down to that memorable character thing but it right. it initially feels like huh okay are we gonna now talk to this lady for a while like is this the thing we're doing um but I did like it I thought I thought it was interesting it's like oh you know, I kind of was like, is is she, is he going to end up becoming friends with her instead? Like, you know what I mean? Like, kind of thing. But it's like, it's like, there's not enough movie left. Movie, you have to stop. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And it does stop in the next scene. Yeah. Uh, yeah and yeah. then our final curveball is that the waitress sings the, <laughs> sings the theme song <laughs> for the rest of the weird. credits. Like, that one was interesting. Like, it, it had a... Um, I don't know how to say it. I'm trying to remind. I'm trying to think what what director that reminds me of, but it does remind me of somebody. Just mm. doing something like that feels feels familiar. I don't think it's Jonathan Demme. It's somebody else, but I can't think of who it is. Like so just the that idea of that happening feels familiar to me, and uh, it's interesting. I, I it's it's a, it is a fascinating way to end this movie. I will say. Um, and 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 a good one. I I, I like it. it. Was a it was a fun ending. I I like I said. I I couldn't. I had to zone out the song eventually because it's just it goes on for a very long time. 
yeah, uh, yeah. And it's like now I'm like now I'm just listening to see if it's still going. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> right. The music in this movie, uh, obviously, you know, to me, has he's got a history as a, a music journalist. Um, right. But also, he had just made stop making sense. Um, he really wanted to have a movie. Uh, where all of the music was sourced music, uh, where everything everything we hear is a pre-existing song. Um, that's not quite true. We do have some right. soundtrack stuff that pops up um, from John Cale. Um, but most but there of is it quite is. A, there is quite a bit of, of source music. There is, it is a, yeah. If it's not a majority, it, it's still a lot. Like it's right. And, and obviously, a good. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you please finish your thought. No, sorry. I was just. I was one of the things I I did like about it. I I found it because it's not a hundred percent straightforward. It's it's a little bit eclectic, and I thought that was uh, it's right up my alley. <laughs> yeah, um, and obviously a good a good chunk of that is at the high school reunion um, with with the Feelies playing a band called the Willies, doing covers and doing some of their original stuff as well. Uh, the song that plays when Ray shows up is is a Feely song, um, and uh, it's just one of their sort of darker, harder rock things. So that is a really interesting thing that that they do in the film is that right as Ray's showing up, the music shifts. The right. lighting shifts, and and the entire movie shifts <laughs> shifts genres. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, well, which and I that's really weird. Love. It shifts genres, and, and 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 that's when it takes its sort of slightly more Tarantino tone that right. we talked about. Right. Um, it's also like where, but like it's interesting that the comedy persists. It doesn't like the shift oh, of tone yeah. doesn't array. We don't experience a total we shift we see a more of an augmentation of tone right there's sort of an overlay added to what's been happening right right like like okay well it's still this thing but now it's this thing plus this other thing which creates a new thing i've just used the word thing like 75 times in a sentence yeah um but you know rather rather than a total replacement right right yeah because you know nelson is after that the gas station is after that Exactly, uh, and it's you know it's it's part the humor still uh, is often in in moments of uh, human connection for Charles uh, Charles, right? Uh, you know, like the where the the church girl knocks on his window and asks if he's all right because he's been sitting in the church parking lot right outside the front door of the church, right? The yeah, entire yeah, evening, yeah, yeah, asleep in his car. Um, and he looks and, like hell, yeah. like his face, his nose and, is broken. Yes, absolutely. He's covered in blood. Um, well, I guess he's not covered in blood at that point because he's already changed his shirt. He is covered in blood when he meets Nelson. Nelson, Nelson talks about it, and yeah. it's like Nelson clearly does not necessarily buy, but also doesn't necessarily care about his excuse being kind of <laughs> right, insane. Right. Well, I just yes. get a lot of nosebleeds. It's a, it's a weird thing to say when your nose is clearly broken. <laughs> right, right. Yes. you got a black eye. And, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, Ray with the um, Ray with the hotel store clerk yes. is 
something. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's. It, I think it's meant to make him seem more scary, right? It's, yeah. It's supposed to make him seem more terrifying in the sense that, like, we see Ray has his own set of patterns, where like mm-hmm. he also got that other girl that goes to that school to, sh- or maybe goes Irene to like either either. Yeah. Go, I guess goes to that school like, is a also one of the um, what's the word I'm looking for uh, reunion attendees, right? But he's using her to accomplish his goal, and we see that like Ray has a has a it kind of helps us to continue and and further establish the pattern that like Ray uses especially the women around him to accomplish his goals, right? Like whatever those goals might be, it it it's mostly like give I think help establish his pattern and also make him scarier, right? Like he's also doesn't care that this is a very very young person, right? She's he Ray doesn't care, right? We're supposed to establish like Ray right. is. Uses people to accomplish his goals. B doesn't doesn't seemingly care about who they are. Right, like like he's the exact polar opposite in many ways of uh, Charles. Right, like they're meant to be very dynamically opposite. Right, like they have some things in common. Right, but but in the end, Charles cares deeply about all of the people he meets that he bothers to learn their names. Ray right. seemingly doesn't at all. Maybe doesn't even know their names, right? But sort of has a similar result a lot of times, right? Yeah. And that that person will will help them and or do things for them, right? Right. Right. And then the fact that her her showing up is the only reason uh, Ray's even able to leave the cafe right. uh, after. Uh, after Charlie pulls his big gambit, uh, which is of course just using using Audrey's joke from earlier <laughs> to to right. turn the tables on Ray, yeah. Now it's really uh, I admire that this this is a pretty tightly written movie. Yeah, it's too, got a right? lot of symmetry in the yeah. in the plot. Like things are yeah. you're you're lots of things that are established are are paid off. It, it, it is it's I think it's, I it is very very well. I mean, it's very well written. I would say that like it's hard to judge right like how much the acting is doing versus how much the actual writing is doing in terms of like the actual dialogue. It's very hard to tell. Yeah. Like because there's obviously obviously a lot of heavy lifting happening on the part of the acting as well. Because like I can't necessarily you know what I mean like for example are Nelson's lines all written that way right. or are Nelson's lines things that they while they were doing like whatever they call it, rehearsal on film. Like yeah. they cooked up, you know, to like make this a more dynamic scene. Yeah. Well, one thing, one thing that was definitely cooked up, uh, is that the maintenance guy who Charlie gets the hangover cure from, right? Uh, originally didn't have any lines. Okay. All right. And the guy who plays him is, I think he, was, I think they said he was an artist uh-huh. named Jim Roach. And Jim Roach uh, approached me and said, hey, I, I feel like this sort of guy, if you asked him for, for you know, hangover <laughs> medic- have medicine, about it? would have something to say. And Roach ad-libbed better, be, better to be a live dog than a dead lion, which obviously it then- Becomes a sort Charlie of re- for the whole movie, right? Yeah, yeah as, as repeats. A sort of a, yeah. As a sort of, uh, what's the word, like- um, yeah, it almost a becomes the, yeah, motif <laughs> of the film. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm having a lot yeah. of word troubles right now. 
um, all right. Yeah, so and and I think that's very interesting because that makes me feel like something like Nelson is also more dynamic because of the interactions between Demay and his cast than it is about the writing of the film, right? Right. Uh, because I doubt if, if that if that kind of line is is ad libbed or not ad libbed, but you know what I mean, like sort of on the fly to a certain extent. One has to wonder. Okay, well, are a lot of the interesting lines, which this movie does have a, a quite a few. Yeah. Um, <laughs> could you try to be cool? Uh, wherever it is. Uh, yeah. Uh, Attempt to be. Yeah. Cool. Sorry. I, just it's, love it's, it's, I can't it's ever so remember good. it. The way yeah. it is, the perfect line. I just can't remember yeah. it for some reason. Um, right. It, it makes me feel like okay, some of those have to also probably be uh, come up with on the fly. Which isn't to say the movie's written bad. It just makes me feel like, well, okay, well, the the movie, the the writing is more the plot than it is the sort of like specific deliveries right. and specific uh, lines. And the the plot is pretty innovative. I, I here agree. I and, agree. And I'm not, I'm definitely, not, I'm not, definitely I'm not, something I'm not, we're interested in. So. I'm just trying to sort of parse out the separation that exists. Right. There. The plot is very interesting, and again, flies in the face of tropes that don't necessarily even exist yet per se. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting that way, right? Like. You could have made this plot after all of the Manic Pixie Dream Girl movies of the two, early 2000s and have it be a direct response to those, but it actually predates all of those. Uh, is, a, is a fascinating concept to think about. Um, yeah. Again, obviously, that, that idea, that concept goes back much further. But, but then, you know, so we've got an innovative plot, but a lot of the interesting lines seem to be coming from... So it's like a really good harmony, right? The two... Right, the two elements of it work together very well. If either of them was missing, I don't know that the movie would be as good, right? Yeah. Um, you know, if you Absolutely. didn't have the yeah, if you didn't have those really interesting dynamic uh, characters, I don't know the, the you the plot being interesting might not be enough to have made it sort of break through at least in some people's minds about about you know this is interesting, right? Uh, actually, I couldn't imagine Scorsese directing this film. Like, I, maybe that was supposed to be a joke, right? But like, I, I can't imagine this level of. I mean, obviously, it'd just be a very different movie. But like, I, I'm trying to imagine, picture what that would be like, and it's sort of like, okay, we wouldn't have a lot of those like really weird interactions that we have in in this, uh, which I think really make it. I think the two, the synthesis of the two, is very important here. Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Absolutely. I really, I really do like it. It was, it was a very unexpected, which is why I kept like thinking to myself, "Wow, this is a very weird movie for us to have watched," because yeah. it really felt like it came out of left field. That being said, I really liked it quite a bit. Yeah, <laughs> I really liked it too. Yeah, it's just you know we've been we've been steeped recently in movies that are very much not this. Exactly. Uh, so. We just, we've, and that, and I, you kind of sort of get into a groove where you're like, well, this is just the movies we're watching now. And, and right. you know, this happens all the time. This is a part and part of the process we go through, but like this one sort of really felt like it came out of left field. I'm like, Oh, okay. This is, I, okay. <laughs> if you say so criterion collection. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's really fun. Uh, it's definitely not the Mikado, that's for sure. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll swing back 
right back with Pale Flower next week. So, <laughs> but I'm sure Pale Flower is going to be interesting. Actually, it's a Yakuza film, so it's not. With a title like Pale Flower, I'm thinking it's going to be some Ozu thing. But no, it's not, I'm thinking it's. It, not it, at it's all. I, I'm betting it's not actually going to be that far off from this. Like it won't no, have maybe the not. same comedic elements per necessarily, but um, yeah, I bet it will be interesting because you know the Yakuza, all the films about Yakuza always suffer from the same problem of like, well, how do we stand out among a bajillion of these, right? And if they're right, trying right, to stand right, out, right. And they're not trying to roll, just bankroll, like get you know make bank, then it's like, okay, well, we have to do something really strange. Um, so I'm I'm actually yeah. excited. Charlie's an accountant. Yes. And, you know, sort of, we described this earlier as, as Yuppie has a bad day, you know, as, as sort of a genre that yeah. this movie comes comes in during in the 80s. Um, but I don't think, I don't think his job is meant to make him a yuppie. I think his job is meant to make him boring. I well, I think uh, it, I don't. I think yuppie has a bad day is not exact. I think it is. It is right. Uh, I don't know what the term would be, but it's sort of like straight laced dude has a bad day, which is a slightly right, right, different right. genre. It is, but very related. Thing. Right? They both kind of come into their come into their heyday around the same time. Of you know, the yuppie has a bad day is is mostly based on their sort of social attitudes. Um, mm -hmm. And the fact that like this is like they are sort of seen can be kind of seen and understood as a sort of social negative, right? They are like a they are like a, a, a detriment to, to to sort of right. cultural progress in society, right? Uh, and so you know their bad days are based on the idea that like their their preconceived notions about the way society should function and like the things that they want the world to look like, which are as can be understood as being um, sort of counterintuitive to counter to the to sort of cultural and social progress um they have a bad day because they can't get beyond those uh those things right and and it's more about in many ways it's it's either about torturing them or fixing them right, uh, right. whereas straight lace dude has a bad day is more is more manic pixie dream girl than anything else it, it, it is a sort of a similar genre which obviously that's why it's like this right but like it's uh, it's more about like getting them to let go of how straight laced they are and, and, and sort of right. experience the wild side. And that's a very old trope as well, right? Like it kind of goes hand in hand with the, the man pixie dream girl thing, but it, it is, they often go hand in hand. Right. Uh, it, again, but it's not so this one is sort of fits into the category that, um, of the ones where it's not about their, their, their ennui. It's more about them just like, the stress, right? They need to relax. They need to like let go of all the things that stress them out. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think but we find out that Charlie isn't, and Charlie is still that to a certain extent, right? Like Charlie is hunting for relationships and, and so and interaction with, with other humans, but Charlie is still actually a fairly straight laced dude, right? His, it, she's not wrong in understanding that him experimenting with minor like theft is, him dabbling in the idea of like experiencing yeah. a more wild world like to experiencing more of a sort of like interesting and dynamic world she's not yeah. wrong like she diagnoses that element about him correctly she just assumes that he is married and has kids and he doesn't he he pushes that along right he 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 is pushing that lie it doesn't change that his personality is pretty 
straight lace, right? And he does have to let go of that. Right. Right. And, you know, she she assumes that his dalliances into minor theft uh are just an act because hers are or were at least at some point. Um because she has a very straight laced upbringing with a right. with a very kind a, a mother who we uh wouldn't be surprised if she were more straight laced than than she is right you know uh the mom is not so uh, you know she's not overtly religious well i mean um, so that we a, see a lot a of religious iconography but like we we yeah and that, it's meant to be a sort of like a uh a surprise to the audience right we're, we're expecting yeah. her to be very strict very hyper religious right. and I don't, we, we we find out she's a different person than we assume she's yeah. gonna be which is interesting and kind of fun yeah uh, I don't think a working class individual, middle class individual, uh, owns a harp harpsichord unless unless they're really churchy. <laughs> right. Well, I think uh, I think you're yeah, and exactly and, and she has music. like she has a very you know she has a very intense religious iconography too. It's not just right. No, no, you're iconography. right. It's, it is very very intense, but like you start to get this sort of like, oh, this person, it's meant to shock up. Not shock, but like kind of surprises as an audience member. And, and what I, and what I, you were kind of bringing up the idea that like Audrey's initial dalliances and like, th- you know, stealing and stuff were, were kind of an act. And, and, you know, and the other thing is, is that like he, she assumes he's rebelling against the boundaries that he's trapped in, like his wife yeah. and his kids. And we find out over time that that's not actually what he's, do he is rebelling again you know he's trying to rebel against his life but like it's almost more of a, a trying to compensate for like the what he's already lost rather than you know what i mean it's not that they 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 feel like a cage to him it's more that he's lost every lost everything that was important to him and now he's trying to like deal with it right so she she diagnoses but she misdiagnoses right and that's sort of where a lot of sort of movement of the plot comes from which i think is very interesting right like she's she is right he is engaged in minor stealing as a an attempt to become different (laughs) it's just not the way she thought the weird thing sort of about charlie's characterization then to me is that he doesn't really hate his job no okay so you did we didn't okay that's i was trying to get a kind of come to a to an understanding of like charlie charlie's character and I kind of yeah. after we broke up, I think I, 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 I my thought process on this, and this is just my interpretation, is that Charles is not so much rebelling even against his job. I, I don't think rebel is the actual right term. What I think Charles is doing is trying to become a different person as a sort of co- compensate, like coping with the fact that he lost his his life. He already has essentially. Right. He likes his yeah. job, I think, but I don't think he's like, oh, I hate this job. I want to escape, which is a standard for the sort of straight laced man, like learns to become right. a new person. It's more that like the thing that the things that defined him as a person no longer exist, and he has to establish a new person. Right. Like he's essentially and, uh, aimless, and that's part of what the meeting people is about too, and the stealing is too. Right. right. Like he's just trying different people on. Basically, he's trying on different clothes of different people, trying to decide who who is Charlie now. Yeah, and eventually he is led to a space where, uh, he can no longer be happy at that job but that job was not necessarily something that was making him unhappy right you don't ever get the impression that like 
he I think he thinks it's fun when he does do re- elements of rebellion against that job, right? When yeah. he tells him I'll be in by three and stuff. But I don't think it's because he hates those people. You never get the impression that it's like, oh, I hate being here. I hate these people. He actually seems pretty proud of his accomplishments, right? He, on multiple occasions, sort of talks about being VP when, when he's one of the things he sort of seems to, she sort of seems to help him come to as a character is the idea that it's okay to be proud of. And also with the help of like the friend he makes there, right? Like part of the thing that right. happens is he makes a friend at work, uh, even though he's not going to work there anymore. And it's like, oh, right. it's okay to be proud of your accomplishments too. Certainly fair. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do like where this, um, I, I just like the way this movie handles a lot of that kind of stuff. It, the, everybody's character yeah. is a little bit more dynamic than it would necessarily have to be. Not just the side right. characters, but also the main characters. Like it's sort of this could have been a very rote movie, and it's right. just not. It's it's better than that, and I think that's very, uh, very. It's very exciting. It's it's very cool that the movie has so much sort of going on. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, especially considering it's based on some guy making bad assumptions about a couple. In, right, right, in yeah. <laughs> like, kind of, kind of being a, a sort of a, <laughs> uh, sort of a very judgmental in and of himself, right? Yeah, yeah. Ah, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> I think we probably pull this one to a close. It is a really fun movie, and I'm I'm very happy to have watched it. It's been something wild. From 1986, directed by Jonathan Demay. Uh, if uh, you take issue with how I'm saying Jonathan Demay's name, uh, please write in and uh, give me uh, give me the international. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, do do tell. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm pretty sure we're close enough. I've definitely pronounced other directors' names worse. So. Oh, sorry. Uh, but yeah. Uh, speaking of which. Uh, next week, uh, we'll be watching Pale Flower from Masahiro Shinoda. You did excellently. Uh, I'm very proud of you. Thank you. Um, but uh, that's from uh, 1964. Um, we haven't watched a Shinoda film in a real long time. Uh, mm-hmm. We did. Uh, uh, he had one in the Rebel Samurai box set, and uh, we had him with that, uh, that sort of ghostly tale of double suicide, um, which I remember really loving. Uh, yeah. So do look forward to another Shinoda film, our, our third and final, uh, as of right now in the collection. So we'll see, we'll see if we get another one in, in 20 years when we finish this. Yeah, maybe you never uh, know, but yeah, but yeah, something wild this week, uh, been a real fun conversation. Thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I'm, as always, the Adam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Hortari Dorgan. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.
This has been Lost in Criterion, hosted by me, Adam Glass. Find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My co-host is John Patrick Ovatari Dorgan. You can find him on Twitter at jpatrickdorgan. Big thanks to Jonathan Hape for our theme song. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com or hear more from him on any streaming service. Also, thanks to all our Patreon supporters, iTunes reviewers, and Redbubble customers. And hey, thank you for listening.